Welcome to the Assembly of Silence Radio Hour. For this episode, I'm going to do a rather long intro, because it was one of the episodes that was recorded before the whole world changed. But I think there's a way of framing it so that it still has some relevance to the situation that we find ourselves in. This is a conversation with Judah, his son Josiah, myself, about the Jordan Peterson movie, The Rise of Jordan B. Peterson. Dr. Peterson has been an incredibly pivotal figure. I've been aware of him for a very long time, way before his uh, infamy or fame, I guess depending on which side of the spectrum you're on. And um, at the time, he was just a fascinating teacher, speaking about myth and totalitarianism and psychology. And I listened to his uh, Maps of Meaning lectures, and I just found it all very interesting, and I found him a very inspiring figure. And then, lo and behold, several years later, don't ask me how long, but it was definitely at least several, probably about seven or eight years, all of a sudden he took a stand in Canada that was politically difficult to do, and it catapulted him into orbit, let's say. I think pretty much everyone knows who he is, right? Do I have to introduce him? No, I'm not going to. Jordan P. Peterson, if you don't know who he is, look him up. He's been strangely quiet lately. I I understand he had an illness and then he went to Russia for some treatments, which just all seems incredibly bizarre given the the symbolic meaning of Russia at this particular time in history, the amount of weight that it's been given, and that someone who has been characterized as being a kind of extremist alt-right person, even though I think that's an unfair characterization, that is definitely what he's been painted as, that he would go to Russia for treatment, (laughs) you can't make this stuff up. It's unbelievable. What we're confronted with now is something that I have a friend who, who's pointed this out. I think it's very interesting, particularly because whenever a bold personality like Dr. Peterson shows up and takes a stand, quite often they're portrayed as being either extremists to the left or extremists to the right. And this friend of mine points out that really fundamentally what's going on is not a left-right division. It's a top-bottom division. What we're talking about is the difference between those who believe in totalitarianism, in other words, that the ruling class should be able to call all the shots and that everyone should sort of abide by some kind of a system, even if it's profoundly unfair and cruel, versus those who believe in a kind of bottom-up, a more individualistic, libertarian, kind of do-what-thou-will, as long as it doesn't violate some basics. Peterson presents himself as an advocate for the latter. He's someone who believes in, I think what, you know, 
he's more of a classical liberal than anything right wing when it really comes down to it. He believes in a classical, classicist understanding of the nobility of the human spirit and of the right for human self-determination, which is really very much at the core of Western values. You could say that, and, and one of the things that he's known for is, is as an apologist, if you like, for Christianity and for the kind of belief system that underpins uh, Western civilization. And this is posed against those who would dispense with the tradition and think of it as either anachronistic or uh, unfair and want to build some kind of a future that is at least theoretically more equitable more environmentally friendly, which, you know, goes hand in hand with energy efficient. In other words, sort of more adaptive to large scale civilization, even if in order to do so, it impinges on individual liberty and freedom. It has to be noted that there are a lot of very powerful interests that would stand to benefit greatly by these programs that claim to be about equity. <laughs> so, so there's that to think about. But on the other hand, it's not entirely clear that the notion of individual liberty has ever been a particularly realistic goal. So this seems to be, in some way, an encapsulation of the battle that's going on right now in our world. And the crisis that we're presently in is, in many respects, an expression of that. Because if you have a pandemic, and let's just assume that everything that's going on is, to some extent, at face value. So that there is a virus and that it has the capacity to decimate the population and that we have to take some precautionary principle into uh, account in order to go about life now, that it changes everything. Well, that is really a affront to those who would commit themselves to individual liberty. And we're starting to see some of those types of, of groups that are dedicated to individual liberty rebel against the prescriptions being recommended, let's say, by the so-called health authorities. Now, let's just be really clear here. The health authorities have done an abysmal job here. They have recommended the wrong things. At the, at the get-go, they were completely on the wrong side of this thing if the whole idea was to make everyone take it seriously. So they basically denied that it was an issue. They said it was nothing but the flu. They told you that masks were not effective and that you shouldn't wear them. <laughs> okay, so those are our health authorities, right? Nevertheless, now we're in a situation where everyone has apparently woken up to the situation that there's a real problem and that everyone needs to take it seriously. We need to practice social distancing and the entire world economy has ground to a halt as a result. So 
there's a tendency to want to frame this in political terms, but I want to take a little stab at reframing it as something entirely different. Because on some basic level, everything that happens here on planet Earth is the result of forces that are far greater than human aspiration. And we are, in, in essence, responding to circumstances that are far greater than we have any control over. So just because we want it to be a certain way, just because we believe in liberty or we believe in liberation or we believe in uh, emancipation or we believe that uh, things should be shared more equitably, none of those beliefs are in any way necessarily tied to the reality that we're living in. But I am going to make the case that Dr. Peterson is missing something very fundamental. While I completely sympathize with his position, and I am actually someone who does hold many of the same values, it's like that's where my heart is. I believe in individual liberty. I believe that we each have our own life to live and that it's a God-given life and that we have to make the most of it in the way that we see fit. But I also believe that humanity has made some terrible errors and that these errors have created the circumstance where that way of living is now becoming almost completely untenable. And on some level, it's just a very, very simple equation. It comes down to population. There are those within network systems theory who have observed that the characteristics of a network depend upon the number of nodes in the network. And what this means is that the characteristics of a species, its behaviors, are deeply and inextricably tied to the population, and, and what that really means is the population's relationship with its environment. Because everything is about energy availability. And human population now is such that we have really taxed our environment unbelievably, and we can't all just do whatever the heck we want. The present situation regardless of what you think it is, is in many respects the culmination of that reality finally kind of coming to hit the world. The etiology of the whole thing doesn't really matter. It's the fact that the frickin' thing exists in the sense that people are getting sick and dying, and they're dying in very strange ways indeed. If you take a look at some of the reports of what actually is happening inside the bodies of the people who are dying, it's really quite something else. And if you take a look at some of the other reports that are making connections between some of the key players here and some of the research that was done in Wuhan, it seems pretty clear that, whether intentional or not, this is a... Uh, this is likely, maybe not definitely, but likely an engineered gene sequence. So the world is facing a 
uh, a global threat. And it's being exploited to its full potential. And it is a very delicately balanced world for many, many different reasons. And it's really unclear whether or not the world will continue to function at all. But it does seem relatively clear that it wasn't functioning very well before this either. When was the last time the world was really functioning well? It's pretty hard to say. I mean, it was functioning well for some, but not many. And increasingly, it's been functioning for fewer and fewer. So you could say that, well, that's because there's less and less. <laughs> but, you know, the disparity charts are pretty clear. It's really because an ever smaller number of people are taking more and more. Now, it may be that they're taking more and more because they have information about how little there really is left for everyone. You know, that would, that would be one way of rationally explaining the kind of greed that we see happening. But it, in either case, we're talking about a very large number of people. And anytime you have a large group of people, individual liberty is going to be necessarily restricted. So I think that Peterson's blind spot is very simply in biology, you know, the biology of population is a huge factor in determining the characteristics of a species. So our species now has populated itself to the point where restrictions on individual liberty seem like an unavoidable byproduct of the circumstance. And I certainly wish this weren't the case, but can anyone tell me why it wouldn't be? I mean, on some level, you could say that this is really the story of humanity. Civilization has always imposed restrictions on individual liberty because civilization is large numbers of people gathered together in order for them to unite to some kind of common purpose, which is always what's required in any civilization. There have to be restrictions on behavior. So, in a globalized society, which is essentially what's happened here, you know, the nation state has been weakened by these corporate structures that are transnational. And the transnational corporate structures are really the foundation of what allows for the population that presently exists. How can this world survive without industrial agriculture? I mean, I'm a great lover of organic agriculture. And, and I believe that the natural way of living is, is the best way. But that's not what's happened on this earth. We've gone the other way. We've... Uh, it, because we didn't want to suffer the losses that would keep our population within balance in the environment. We relied on our own cleverness, our own technology, to squeeze everything we could get out of this earth. And it's created a terrible situation. 
So our, our, you know, our choice is relatively simple. We're either going to die off in very large numbers and return to some kind of a natural way of living, which is hard to imagine given you know, what would actually happen. Like We're talking about a pandemic that appears to affect, let's say, I mean, they're arguing about the number, but even if it's 1%, that was not an acceptable number. 1% of the population dying off. 1%. So clearly, we don't have an appetite for cutting back our numbers. And so that would mean that fundamentally, we have to figure out a way of continuing with the numbers we have. And that's going to require a radical shift, particularly in the West, in the way that people live. Just way less energy availability per, per capita. And so all this kind of makes sense, like everything that's going on makes sense when you frame it in those terms. It's essentially a, an evolutionary process. So it sucks. And, uh, and it sucks especially hard for for some of us who just have been screwed by the system for so long. So um, it's difficult to imagine a really nice way out of this whole thing. But... Um, It's not as if we really understand everything about it. So I wouldn't lose all hope here. And in some respects, we know that this thing had to change. And maybe we could have changed it in some better way earlier on, but it sure is changing now. And just because it doesn't look good doesn't mean it won't turn out good. That's something that is hard to really get with, but it's absolutely true. There have been many times in my life where it really seemed like things were not going to turn out good, and I was wrong. It didn't turn out necessarily great, but it turned out better than I was expecting. So we just have to stay as clear as we can, as open as we can, as honest as we can, and we have to continue ahead with determination and not succumb to uh, despair. And I think in many respects, Dr. Peterson is a wonderful advocate for those things. He's, he's someone who is willing to discuss the shadow, the, the Jungian shadow, the dark side of the human soul, and to really take a good look at it. And I think that's something we all need to do, because this could go really badly, but it doesn't have to. So even though I think he's in some ways not perceiving the situation 100% correctly, I think he's a really important voice, and I hope that he returns to the stage soon. I'm really looking forward to hearing what he has to say. But in the meantime, you're going to listen to, if I haven't scared you away yet, a conversation about the movie that, uh, that takes a look at this man, an interesting man. I hope you find the conversation interesting. As usual, if you'd like to support the program, the links are in the show notes description. You can go to patreon.com slash taiji reality. There's crypto, 
tell people about the show. And as I always forget to do, I'm remembering right now, uh, if you're listening on Apple iTunes, hit the, what is it, like button or give it a review, certain number of stars, all that kind of crap supposedly makes a difference. Uh, appreciate whatever it is you feel you can do to uh, further the assembly of Silence Cause. And that will be it. Enjoy the show. Here we are. Okay, I am pleased to welcome Judah and his son, Josiah. Hello. And uh, we have an event this is for you. Yes, it's going to be an event. It's going to be an event for us. We're going to sit down and we're going to watch the Jordan Peterson movie. What is it called? The, the Rise of Jordan Peterson. The Rise of Jordan Peterson. Here, get right up on the microphone. Yeah. Yeah, we're going to be very... We're working with one microphone. One of the microphones went down, so we're all cuddled around this microphone here. <laughs> very close podcast. Very close proxy. Get in there, Judah. <laughs> okay. So, so we're going to watch the movie, and if something comes up that we think is worth discussing, then we'll be right back. And if not, then you can just wait around till the end, and we'll discuss it all then. So let's see what happens, shall we? Okay, here we go. Anything else need to be said? No. Okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to hit pause. Okay, so we've just watched, I don't know, maybe about 20 minutes of this thing. And, and there's a bunch of things that have come up that are probably worth discussing. But maybe before we do that, should we just take a minute to discuss... Why we're interested in Jordan Peterson, what we know about him mm. prior to sitting and watching this, and maybe something uh, about the issues that surround him. Who wants to go first? <laughs> I will. Okay. I'll go first. Speak into yeah. the microphone. Oh, I got to speak into the microphone. Yeah, this get, is get, where it gets intimate. Yes. So, um, actually, you introduced me to Jordan Peterson. Oh I know. Seriously, right? <laughs> Which is really funny. Uh, because then, not too long after you introduced me to him, Josiah said, have you ever heard of Jordan Peterson? And I was like, wow, that's pretty funny because uh, my friend Noah just turned me on to Jordan Peterson. And so, um, but what I appreciated, uh, uh, what I've appreciated about listening to him is his depth of, of, of thinking. It's like he has the capacity to will his thinking. Mm -hmm. and, and, and that is, in my opinion, freedom. So like the freedom is huh. right. That's like he's fr he's a free thinker. He's a free individual in that respect that he's not bound to just like knee jerk reaction thought or looping thinking or mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. And so um, so it, uh, I got really excited to know that Josiah was starting to follow Jordan Peterson, being that he's uh, the age that he is. And, uh, and he's my son. And I thought, well, I, this guy's he, my son's on a good path. I don't have to worry about him anymore. <laughs> <laughs> okay, very interesting. You want to yeah. give us a few words on... Well, I was introduced to Jordan Peterson about um, March, April of 2018 mm. when I was, I was going through a bout of anxiety. And what really turned me on to him was his speaking of personal responsibility and meaning through uh, your personal responsibilities. Mm. And it was a lot to take in at the at that point in time. There are all the concepts I've had to take breaks and come back to what he's been saying, but it really helped me through that period of my life, and um, may, really shaped me into the man I am today. Well, it's interesting because yeah. I've had a long uh, kind of I've been interested in Peterson since before he became 
a, uh, a celebrity, if you like. And I listened to a bunch of his lectures back when he was just lecturing about mythology and psychology, and I found him fascinating. I thought, wow, you know, if only more people would listen to this guy. <laughs> and then, lo and behold, all of a sudden, he's blown up into probably one of the most prominent public intellectuals today, contemporary, mm-hmm. right? So um, it's amazing, and yet it's so disturbing, kind of the, the maelstrom that's he, that he's in the middle of. And mm-hmm. it's brought up all kinds of incredibly difficult things to navigate. You know, you can see him in, in this movie really struggling to try and find a stable place to, to position himself. And he's mm-hmm. really aware of all these pitfalls that are being set up all around him. And it's amazing how well he navigates all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Like, it's just unbelievable. I don't know how you can maintain that kind of presence of mind under that mm-hmm. kind of pressure. Mm-hmm. But... Um, what do you think of as being kind of the primary issue that's at stake here? When you know we just got about twenty minutes into this, <laughs> we're starting to see how a professor who's teaching about psychology, mythology, and kind of totalitarianism—the history of disastrous ideological movements—gets mm-hmm. drawn into. Uh, one of the primary ideological movements currently manifesting itself around the world. It's kind of a global phenomenon in some respects. And he sees it kind of looking like history is beginning to rhyme and we're ending up going down this slippery slope towards Mm -hmm. things that he knows from a very well-informed position can lead to some terrible, terrible places. So he decides to make a stand, mm-hmm. and it resonates with people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I think it's an amazing thing because he is so well-versed on the history of totalitarianism and the way that the political landscape had shaped during uh, these movements. And he's standing up, and people are very appreciative of that. Because they can see it themselves, but they can't put it into words the same way he can. Mm-hmm. And some people aren't very appreciative of it because they're blinded by their ideology, and they think they're right because they're seeking they're, they're they're seeking what they think is equality through ideology, and thereby the real hot button issue here is his defense of of free speech and not legislating. Um, gender speech, which right. is where we're at right now in the documentary, in the first twenty minutes here, and I th- and I think that's huge because w- what we're witnessing is is a group wanting to be equal in the eyes of everybody, but they're trying to do it by forcing legislation to make it a hate crime if you don't use certain words to identify them. So. In many respects, that's not equal. Exactly. That's that's special treatment. Exactly, and, that's the whole point. You know, mm-hmm. when at what point did people become convinced that you could say that language was a hate crime? Mm-hmm. 
right? That's you know that you know what what was what were the other categories that Peterson managed to extract from that one guy that he was interviewing? It wasn't wasn't just a hate crime. It was it was violence. Also, it was violence, violence. exactly. Yeah. So does now, it, does it equate the violence? And that person said, "Yeah, if you don't use the words that that that, equi- that we want, that equates to violence." Basically. Now you know that equates to insanity, as far as I'm concerned. You know, we we had the old saying, "Sticks and stones can break my bones, but." Uh, words can never hurt me. You know, it's a very simple, cliched statement that seems mm-hmm. about as true as you can get. Pretty simple and straightforward, right? Mm-hmm. And if we lose that, then we really lose the ability to do exactly what we, what he presents and what you were saying is really important about him being able to articulate and have a conversation with people about ideas and various positions so that we can all understand where we are and learn enough about each other to get along even if we don't agree. Mm-hmm. So, Well, I think a very, what's very problematic is that the one side isn't uh, willing to have a conversation with the other. Um, and uh, that's how we progress our society and come to reasonable thoughts. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, okay, so I think that we all agree on some fundamental level that the ideology that Peterson is standing up against is fundamentally unreasonable and that this is not what we would hope for. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But mm-hmm. I want to I present the case that in some respects, we can reasonably expect there to be unreasonable ideologies given the world that we're in, given the, the conditions that we're in in a very large sense. And so... At one point, Peterson made that comment about, you know, ideologies serve the function of providing a structural way of a group dealing with some kind of an emotional state. Mm-hmm. And I think that's an incredibly profound insight that explains why ideology is so powerful. Because when people are placed into conditions that provoke very strong emotions that they can't handle, and that can't, they really can't find a way of being okay on some fundamental level, they're going to turn to ideological solutions, you could say. Mm-hmm. And so we see pretty clearly how that happened in Europe when post-World War I, Germany was punished pretty severely, and it, it provided the fertile ground for a national ideology, national socialism, right, that would restore dignity to people who felt that they had been robbed of it. Mm -hmm. And so it addressed the emotional need of a people that goes beyond reason. At a certain point when people are in emotional need, they are, it doesn't matter what the reasoning is. And that's why these people will use their frickin' air horns and whatever the hell they were putting through that speaker (laughs) just to shut down conversation. Well, and Trauma does that, though. And, and tra- trauma leads people into unreasonable emotional states, especially when an, individual's, uh, an individual who's been traumatized uh, has a re-triggering of that trauma, and anything can do that. That will lead them into a very irrational, very unreasonable um, emotional reaction that they have no control over. Mm-hmm. But I think trauma is a buzzword these days, too. Mm-hmm. So, it, so, so it could be used as an excuse, but on the other hand, uh, it could be a very real experience, and particularly people who are already hurting, yeah. 
let's say, mm-hmm. having whatever solution they've come up with ideologically to deal with that hurt being attacked, mm-hmm. right, and being told that that's absolute insanity will deepen that hurt, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So we're in a bind here. Yeah. You know? I think the factor is, is I mean, ideology – you know, ideology has always been here. I think ideology will probably always be here for the most part. Uh, it's when we begin to legislate the ideology mm-hmm. is where it becomes a real issue, right? So it's so I, I think having an ideology that's just a normal part of being human for the most part. And if an individual wants to be referred to as in a certain way, that's totally fine and that's the request right mm-hmm. and and when you make a request you also have to be willing to have that request accepted or denied mm-hmm. and but it's when you start to force people into it against their free will and here's the issue is that when you begin to legislate social issues that's not really authentic change mm-hmm. that's that's forcing people to do something or turn them into a criminal and and you know so it's when we as a as a collective uh, make change by how we view people or our ability to receive people's uh, requests, then there's a freedom in that change. But if you force me to make that change, well, that's not. There's only going to be resentment that mm-hmm. comes out of that for the most part. Mm-hmm. When you force someone to make a change, it's not genuine. Exactly. When you, when you request it and you're genuine about it, I'm sure the, usually they, the request is accepted when you're genuine. Yeah. Well, it, it may be accepted on the level of being heard, but it may not produce the change that you're petitioning for. Mm-hmm. And, and I think it's also worth noting that people are quite often forced to change in all kinds of ways. Yeah by a wide variety of circumstance, whether that's just environmental conditions, overall social conditions changing because of environmental ch- conditions, economic conditions, social political conditions. There's a, a wide range of ways in which people are continually being forced to adapt to things that they wouldn't want to adapt to. So that's constantly at play here as well. And sometimes that's necessary, right? I mean, sometimes we actually need that, say, um, in the case of physical harm, Mm -hmm. in the case of environmental harm, things like that. That makes a lot of sense. Um, But as you were saying earlier, the sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me. Uh, uh, Old cliche is now we're talking about language here. And so saying that you have to call somebody a they, a them, a their. And I'm not anti-LGBTQ. I have a lot of friends that are by any means. And I, and I think the, the people that I know are very reasonable and they're not, that's, it's, they're not mandating that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's just, this, this, this is a real slippery slope. It's such a landmine topic. No doubt. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay, have we said everything we need to say about this section? Um, well, I would like to say that the, uh, the reemergence of political correctness, I view it as a problem. I, ever since I've moved from rural area, Midwest, Illinois, to Oregon, which is more progressive, um, my workplace is very left-leaning in their politics, and I have to be very careful in what I say. It's, um, I have to be really precise in my speech to make sure that no one can tangle it up or anything like that. And I view that as a, a real problem. 
I also view that as a real gift too, because precision of speech is mm -hmm. critical. Yes, There's so many that. people that are just sloppy in their speech these days. Sloppy speech is the common. And one of the things I do admire about you is your precision of speech. And, and I think that's something that Noah and I also share in common. It's one of the things I immediately recognized in Noah when we met and started forming our friendship is that precision in the words that you choose to use, I think, is really critical for the very reason you just said. That is so that people cannot tangle it up. Mm -hmm. Well, it's interesting. As a, as a host of this podcast, I've become increasingly aware of the many ways in which my speech is not very precise. But I nevertheless do try to um, say what I mean, and I think it's a great challenge to be put in a situation where you have to rise to the occasion and be precise about what you're saying. But on the other hand... It's also the case that a society that has difficulty tolerating what people are saying is a very fragile society, a very brittle society. And so I'd say that this is an indicator on some deep level that we're a society that's falling apart. Mm -hmm. You know, if we can't really even listen to each other, right. then it, it doesn't bode well. And that, that's the crux of the issue that he's speaking to, I think, Jordan Peterson, is, is that, that we need to be able to listen to each other because that's the only way we come to resolution. Mm -hmm. Right. But the irony, of course, is that people who are relying upon an ideology on some fundamental level, if you're listening to them, you're not listening to what you're, they're saying. You're listening to the condition that they're living in, mm -hmm. which is basically saying... I can't handle the emotional condition that I'm in, right. right? So now how do we deal with that and not just make it an intellectual issue about, well, you're trying to control my language, <laughs> you know, like, because that's not going to solve the problem. Oh, well, I mean, that's, and this is where uh, more emotional intelligence and training for people in this area is so necessary because it's, it's, it has to come around to, uh, understanding why the person is feeling what they're feeling and being able to say, you know, what's going on within you that's leading you to, to these feelings, you know, like what ails thee would be the question. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The only thing I would say about that is that we're really not talking about a person. Right. You know, once it gets to the point where it's an ideological issue, then we're talking about a significant sector of society. And so then we're, that really, I think, maybe is more appropriate to just think of, hmm, okay, so what's going on in society that would lead people to have the need for this ideological technique, this ideological formulation to come about? Mm -hmm. I felt like you had something to say, but okay, no. <laughs> so, you know, that, that suggests, I think, that, that something far deeper is afoot. Yeah. Yeah, and, and we were talking before, I don't think we've mentioned it quite yet, that there's a variety of ways in which ideologies are popping up everywhere mm -hmm. because oh. people are placed into ever more desperate straits. Mm -hmm. I, in my practice, I see it all the time. I mean, if you want to find some ideology, start looking at nutrition. It's, mm -hmm. There's every ideology you could ever imagine, you know, vegetarian, vegan, mm -hmm. raw, mm -hmm. right? And these are hardcore, these are hardcore 
ideologies. And um, I have to untangle them all the time for people, especially uh, the vegan and the vegetarian and uh, for environmental reasons. And, you know, I'm hitting a landmine topic right there. (laughs) Every ideology is a landmine. So here's the question then, you know, in your experience, how often are you able to penetrate beyond the veil of the ideology and reach the person suffering inside of it to help them facilitate a change? Fortunately, I, I, because of the amount of time I get to spend with a person, I get that opportunity quite a bit to really have the honest conversation. And I can also come from a place of relation because I was a vegetarian for about a decade for environmental and spiritual and ethical reasons. So I was that person. Interesting. And then my health suffered because of it. And I made a conscious change. <clears throat> and so I can sit in front of a person and say, I was you. I totally get it. And here's what my direct experience is. And I'm telling you that if you keep doing what you're doing, you're not going to get better. Mm-hmm. You know, but then it's their choice to either listen or not listen and make changes or not make changes. And some have made dramatic changes and have said to me, Wow, that's uh, I feel amazingly better, and I would have never had any idea. Mm -hmm. And some refuse, and they're still where they're at. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, I feel that uh, these these uh, progressive ideologies are all based on emotion before thinking. Mm. And when when you critically think about the topic, you can come to some understanding on why it may not be true or some understanding of why some of it is true. Um, so are you sure that that's only progressive ideologies? Well, no. I mean, Emotion. all ideologies have some form of uh, feeling before thinking. Right. And so right, right there you can, you can get a sense of how, you know, sometimes the kind of thinking that Jordan Peterson stimulates in us can be used as a political device. So it's very tricky. It seems that ideologies all share that basic property. They're not rational constructions. They're built on emotional needs, Mm -hmm. right? And the thing that was interesting about what you were just saying, Judah, is that it it seems that one of the ways of really addressing that is to have someone who can say, hey, you know, I've actually been exactly where you are. Mm -hmm. You know, I I believe the same things you did, and it didn't do me a bit of good. (laughs) (laughs) You know, that... For a little while, it did. Right. But then I had to change. Right. So, so you just said. <laughs> we're, we're wheeling this microphone around between the three of us. So, I, if you didn't hear that, he said. I said, uh, <laughs> what did I say? <laughs> it doesn't matter. We already know that. So, yeah. Oh, I said, it, it, you know, what I, what I was doing at the time, as far as vegetarian was concerned, was good for a little while. Okay. It served me for a little while. And then it didn't anymore. And then I had to let it go. So then the question is, served you in what way? Because health isn't the whole story here. We're talking about, if, if it's true, what, what Peterson says that ideologies are fundamentally addressing emotional needs, mm-hmm. uh, it's very interesting that, you know, so my question would be like, how many people who become vegetarians are doing so on the basis of a feeling of, of the harm that's being done to the environment and the world at large by eating meat? You know, it seems like that's Pretty mm-hmm. pretty high percentage, you know, and a big emotional motivating factor, right? So there you have, you know, kind of the essence of an ideology 
that can then get turned into, you know, the solution for the world, right? I mean, there's still plenty of people out there who think that if everyone's a vegan, all of our problems are going to go away, right? And and it would also, I think, probably make sense that people would turn it into a health kick type of thing as well, even if it turns out that it's not really healthy for that many people. Although some people apparently do great on on a vegetarian or vegan diet. It's, it's just a highly individualized thing. Diet, there's only one right diet in the world, and that's the diet that's right for that person, right? So it's highly individualized. And how did it serve me? You know, I got, I had uh, an experience of being healthier. I had an experience of eating more non-traditional foods have broadened my horizons as far as food is concerned. It, it, um, and then it led me into, um, actually if I go, you know, you know, fast forward to today from then, um, wow, the experience has now given me the ability to have empathy and compassion for the people who are sitting in front of me as a practitioner. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And it probably also gave you a sense of community at the time, right? Yeah. So there's a bunch of people who are all dealing with the same emotional concerns who have found a way to kind of rally around and and, and seek a solution. So I, I think that within that context, we can develop more empathy for the people who are in these, uh, what would we call it, I guess, uh, non-binary mm-hmm. uh, groups, right? Mm-hmm who are trying to find a way to deal with the confusion of that condition, mm-hmm. you know, and, um, and perhaps, you know, start to find some way other than just being reasonable because I'm not sure that reasoning is really going to address the situation. Mm-hmm. Well, I feel like if you, if you don't have empathy or compassion for the other side, then you'll never find the objective truth. Right. Well, you'll never get to know them, William. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Exactly. And once you know someone's story and you and you have empathy and you have compassion and you get to know a person's story, then that allows you to have love for that person too. Yeah, I think, you know, just to drill down because we're talking rationally here, the objective truth is probably inaccessible to even the most diligent, mm-hmm. but we can get a sense of where people are living by having empathy and listening to what they're saying. And I think that's the best we can hope for when it comes to dialogue. And it also, I do think it leads us to a, a, a broader understanding that mm-hmm. so we can figure out inside of ourselves what's real and true to whatever extent we can. Yeah. So, yeah. I, I think just the, the act of being heard brings a tremendous amount of healing and resolution. Mm-hmm. I, I witness it in my practice and I, and I see it in... in, in um, the type of work that I do, and it's just being heard brings so, and that's but that's the the crux of where we're at today is that people can't hear each other right now. It's very tricky because you try to imagine the situation that Peterson is in right now, where people want to be addressed by these pronouns, and they feel that. By legislating that, it will ensure that they're going to get the respect they deserve. Mm -hmm. And his criticism of that uh, on the basis of it being a form of language control that might lead to some really terrible totalitarian trends Mm -hmm. is, you know, it's difficult for them to feel heard in that way, right? So how do you approach that whole mess with like listening to them as they're shutting down everything you say, <laughs> it's just it's really difficult. Yeah to, how how do you listen to the other side when they won't listen to you? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
<laughs> it turns it into a shit show, really, you know, but I, I don't have a real good thermometer for where we are right now in all of this. You know, it seems like on some level it's it's simmered down and there's a certain degree of self-immolation that's happened on, let's say, this kind of leftist uh, gender identity front. But I don't think it's going to go away and I don't think it's really going to be solved by being reasonable. So that's why I'm harping on that point a lot. Yeah. I'm, th- I'm thinking we should uh, Move on to the jump back in. Okay. We're going back to it, folks. We'll be right back. <laughs> okay. You guys ready? Here we are. So we watched the whole damn thing. <laughs> we didn't stop again. We talked about it all, and I'm not sure if we can even summon up again what it was that we were talking about, but let's see what happens. Who wants to talk first? Well, I would just like to note your charge around the, uh, <laughs> around the documentary. <laughs> charge. Yeah, you were yeah, high. You, you, had a, you, had a, you had a strong response yeah, to, to, to the documentary. But I know you very well, so I, I would expect that. So well, I mean, there's some significant issues at stake here, you know? Yeah. It's a serious situation, mm-hmm. you know? It is. It's a serious situation. One of the issues that we were just discussing is that you were taking issue with the fact that he has a message that's going out to millions of people to lead a better life, but you don't know the impact of that because we have a dicey economy right now, and he's he's you know leading people to like take responsibility, get a job, do all that, but we're in a dicey situation. There might not be the quality of jobs for everybody to go get one or, right. or to make one for themselves, right? So, you know, part of the kind of liberal, the intersection between liberalism, classical liberalism and libertarianism is this idea of like self-made person, right? So you can quote unquote, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, which is one of the most insane phrases ever devised to describe what that is. But the ideal is very like frontiersman. It's like, you're going to go out there and make your life and make it happen. Right. So but the fact of the matter is right now, like, okay, yes, of course, there are many things that we can all do to uh, improve our chances or to screw ourselves up. Right. So definitely do the things to improve your chances. But let's be realistic about the situation. You have to have a functional economy in order for people to have frickin' jobs. If the jobs are not there then we're going to have a problem no matter how much you do to prepare for it, right? Mm-hmm. So the question is, like, I think Andrew Yang is bringing up some important issues right now. He's saying we're heading towards a situation where the job market is going to become decimated by automation and artificial intelligence. Never mind some of the economic dislocations that might happen, mm-hmm. right? What did I just do? Nothing. You're good. Okay. Mm-hmm. Good. So... You know, you can have a lot of, uh, you can have a real problematic job market without automation and artificial intelligence if the economy goes south, right? So we have a, a lot of economic instability going on right now. You know, I mean, basically all of the global currencies are paying, playing chicken with each other. So it's it's a weird, screwed up situation. And so my concern is like this whole idea of returning um, the responsibility to the individual. 
may be misplaced in the world that we're moving into. That's really at the core of, you know, because I think that on some level, in order for society to really operate in an automation, artificial intelligence environment, we're going to need something like a uh, universal basic income, you know, which is, you know, it, uh, you can make the argument that it actually is a bit more free market than standard socialism types of programs, you know. But it's going to smell a lot like socialism to the people who are in the pull yourself up by your own bootstraps camp, right? right? Yeah, we are. I mean, and I agree. I agree with that. And the only person who can take responsibility for their life is you, right? You, you, we, like, I have to be responsible for my life. I have to do the best job I possibly can to be responsible for my life. And yes, the, we do have an economy that's dicey. And I agree that there is, uh, I think we need to be looking at something like a universal basic income. And I think each individual has to learn to take responsibility for their life as well. Um, it's interesting. I think while I completely agree and actually feel that the best things in life are about taking personal responsibility and that that kind of vision of the potential of humanity of people developing themselves as individuals and coming to their own understanding of things and developing their capacities and trying to uh, live as best as you possibly can as an individual. All of that is really, I think, in line with the best of what life would have to offer under the ideal circumstances. But I also think that since the population density has increased to the extent that it has and we've had the impact on our environment that we've had, we are likely to be placed in circumstances where society is going to play way more of a role in what actually ends up happening in people's lives. So social institutions, I think, are extremely important in a technocratic society. And we're going to have to have some kind, ideally it will be a balance, but we are living in a relatively polarized world which suggests that things will not maintain balance easily. So my concern is that we will probably have a situation where people are forced to deal with systems that they would prefer not to deal with, which is pretty much where we already are. Right, and this is the whole, I think, I, I, I think that having more people taking responsibility for their lives or, say, following the 12, rule, 12 rules for life, this will naturally lead to the innovation that we need to care for all people. God willing. God willing. Mm -hmm. So correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that the main problem that you have with the film is no matter how much individual responsibility you preach to get your life in order, there's still underlying extraneous factors that could spiral your life into chaos. Yeah, I'd say circumstantial factors that, that are both environmental, sociological, if you like, uh, economic. All of these are, are a huge determinating factor on whether or not one can make, you know, even with the best skill set, a life that you can feel really good about. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. I so, would say the best... the. The best thing to do would be to to take on the personal responsibility. Oh, no doubt. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't think that there's anything to suggest that to do otherwise would make any sense. It's mm -hmm. 
It's just a question of whether or not that's going to be sufficient. And mm -hmm. I think that things have to be portrayed within the context that we're actually facing. Mm -hmm. that's, that's what concerns me is that somehow or another it would be merely sufficient to follow 12 rules of life and then it'll all freaking work out. And I just don't really see that as being the case. Will it be stable enough for your life to uh, sustain itself? Yeah, will, will we have enough opportunity mm -hmm. in the various societies that we all live in uh, to to do the best that we can and and make something of it. That's really the big question right now. And I, I think that Peterson makes great points and that they're all worth really taking seriously, but I think that the overall context is sometimes missing from from his overall analysis. You know, he, he has more faith in, in that that a capitalist model will continue to function in some, uh, in some way that would satisfy the requirements of, uh, of a majority of the population than I do. I think that we are in a, in a crisis situation with regards to capitalism. And, and I don't think that communism or socialism are really going to do the trick either. I think we really have to rethink the way that we're organizing ourselves and the priorities that we're placing on various things in order to have a world that's actually going to work for people. The main thrust that I took away from from this documentary of him and with his viewpoint in the in the was that I mean he's really striving to get people to think independently. Yeah, right. He's really wanting to break down that groupthink, that that collectivism, and really strive to figure out who they are as an individual and to think for themselves critically, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, R Rudolf Steiner made a statement once that I really have, have sat with for a long time, and that is the more individualized we become, the more universal we become. Mm -hmm. Meaning that the more we break down the constructs that we of what we think we are that allows us to become part of a group think process, and the more individualized we become in our thinking, uh, and, and the less we identify as I am this or I am that, um, the more actually universal we become because we have less barriers between us and another individual. And I, and I, and I think that's really the striving here is that it, the more you think freely, I, I, and this is what I'm taking away from it, is that the more you can hear other perspectives and the less conflict you're going to find. It's interesting because you could say that's somewhat like an anti-identitarian stance, mm -hmm. uh, which makes perfect sense given that that's the, the uh, primary issue that Peterson was reacting to. And he's mm -hmm. taken pains to try not to be placed into a box. Mm -hmm. Nevertheless... Peterson is a phenomena, and as a phenomena, he has only a certain degree of control over what role the Peterson phenomena plays in society. It's kind of not up to him after a while. It's more like how is he going to be used. Yeah. And that's where I think, you know, fame has its pitfalls. I mean, we, we have limited control even on a one-to-one -one basis on whatever it is that our efforts are going to be used for, if you like, how they'll be received, what kind of consequences will flow from them. But when you're basically an image that's being projected out to the mass audience, you know, I think that the society of the spectacle, Guy Debord's rules, start to take effect. And, and things 
that might seem, you know, the problem is that being reasonable, which is really the basis for any kind of an intellectual exercise, has very limited utility when it comes to the real world. The real world is not a reasonable place, you know. People are not reasonable people in general. More often than not, and the reason why ideology forms is because of emotional states, right? And so we are all fundamentally emotional beings in many respects, some more so than others. And I think that reason is the antidote. Reason can help us. But I think we can also forget that we cannot reason our way out of this world. We can't reason this world to behave the way that we want it to. You know, that that runs the risk of being a kind of act of hubris because it's not acknowledging the way that things actually are. It's the sattva, right? That's kind of like attempting to deal with the problem of the gunas by some sort of a spiritual transcendence. But the, the world, you know, that's like trying to dwell within the platonic realms in order to solve the problem, the messy problems of this world. <laughs> you know, so yes, the intellectual adventure is absolutely of essential, what do I want to say? You shouldn't avoid the intellectual adventure just because it's not going to be enough. But you shouldn't think that the intellectual adventure will be enough. Mm-hmm. So that, that also, I think, is one of the limitations of, of Peterson's approach. He wants people to be reasonable. I think that's a valid desire, though. Oh, I mean, I think it's a, it's a perfectly understandable desire. It's the way in which we would prefer to deal with everyone, of course, but that's really just a preference, because you're going to deal with a lot of unreasonable people. Right, and then you and you got to be able to have that conversation and break it down, unfortunately, with like we've been saying, that we don't live in a time where people seem to be able to communicate with each other or well, hear the opposing viewpoint. Because, you know, th- there's a certain political advantage in not being reasonable. And that's, you know, yeah. in yeah. really displayed pretty clearly in Peterson's, the conf- confrontations that he has with some of the people there. But also it has to be said that, you know, fundamentally the power dialectic isn't reasonable. Like, power doesn't really care what our reasons are for this or that. Hierarchy has been here... Uh, since the birth of creation, for the most part, that it's hierarchical structure, so... Yeah. I mean, even in the lobsters, right? Mm-hmm. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> okay, what else do we have to say about this? <laughs> it was a lot to take in. We went, we went I think, a good um, almost hour or so before commenting on this movie again. So we took in a lot of information. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's interesting. You know, so the, the movie is, I think, doing a pretty good job of trying to paint, let's say, both sides. It's doing a little bit of like the Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde, like two mm-hmm. sides of this personality. But yeah. I think it's pretty clear that there's nothing um, intentionally malevolent about Peterson. So mm-hmm. if there is going to be some kind of a big dark shadow out of all of this, it will be unintentional. And I think he's as worried about that as everyone else. But I think there's really good reason to be worried about it. I, I actually think there are some really big problems here. I, I think it will be, if there's a big dark shadow here, it's going to be fabricated. Well, 
again, it kind of comes down to the extent to yeah. which someone can control the thing that yeah. they've let loose in the world, you know? Well, so you can't control, that's the, you know, sorcerer's apprentice, right? You can't control what you've let loose in the world. Exactly. That's why I wonder what the consequences of the assembly of silence will be. Uh, well, God only knows. But does that mean don't do anything? Does that mean don't share your gift with the world? Does that mean not uh, 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 put out the message of, like, be self-responsible? Well, I mean, come on. Let's give credit where credit is due. The Taoists say that non-doing is really kind of one of the best approaches that one can take. That's even doing. Oh, yes. Yes, but it's, the, it's still different than, than what we're talking about, man. Don't get technical on me. <laughs> That's uh, non-doing is an action, right? It's just a, to know when to okay. not do. Okay, right? here's the difference, right? So systems theory. If you have a system that has a lot of activity going on within it, right, then regardless of the kind of thing that you do, when you commit an act, what you're doing is you're creating more activity within the system. So if it's a chaotic system, then every additional gesture is going to increase chaos within the system. So by choosing not to do something within a chaotic system, you're actually really making quite a different choice than taking action. Sure. Right? And out of chaos can come order. So increased chaos can bring order. Well, that sounds like a kind of a Saul Alinsky approach to things. <laughs> <laughs> So there's a you know there's a method to that madness and you know it has to be recognized that it it has an effective way of going about doing things so it's employed for a reason and whether or not it will actually bring about the the chaos it's looking for that will eventually lead to what exactly some kind of workers paradise or something where the people will finally get what they have wanted or what they deserve more likely really We'll see. I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm suspicious of all of it, as usual. <laughs> you are a suspicious individual by nature. So well, that's you know, <laughs> there's uh, yep, probably. So let's see. We haven't had an Assembly of Silence moment yet, no, and we I don't have the I benefit of the headphones to, uh, <laughs> to cue you guys into it. And Josiah, do you know what the Assembly of Silence moment entails? It's the moment where the conversation comes to the silence. Yeah, there's nothing left it. to say. But like every other bit of silence on this podcast, it actually has a lot of noise associated with it. So <laughs> we end up. What we do is we hear. I'm going to give you these so that yeah, you can so you can hear it. Yeah, he needs to right? have his assembly of silence moment here yeah. because I think we have reached that point of there is nothing left to say. Yeah, I'll believe it when it happens. <laughs> You didn't do anything. <laughs> you you got to make some freaking noise into it. That's all we're going to get out of yeah. just right there. I just want to say it was a pleasure to do <laughs> this podcast with Josiah. Yeah, this is a lot of fun. This was great. Yeah, I enjoyed it as well. All right, great. Well, you're awesome. welcome back on it anytime you like, yeah. with or without your dad. You did when, a great job. Whenever you have something you want to talk about and you want to let the whole world know it, well, the whole world, <laughs> the extremely limited Assembly of the Silence Radio Hour listenership, 
The platform is yours. The just whole world, the, potentially. That's right. correct. You never know. We could blow up just like Jordan Peterson, and then we'll really be screwed. I know. So just know, you have no idea what the consequences are. Okay, and then we'll really have an opportunity to change the world. So make it exactly what we want it to be. We're coming to the realization. Because God knows of... that happens every time someone has a brilliant idea. The realization of the power of your words. That's okay, right. that's there it. It's a double-edged sword. <laughs> Thanks a lot, guys. That was lovely. Thanks for listening. We look forward to serving you again soon. In the meantime, remember, turn that thing over a few times before you pick it up and take it home. <laughs>